This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Bella Catering, one of Sydney's very best catering companies run by Glenn and Maria and their team. Glenn is a degenerate, but their entire team is absolutely incredible. Great food, great reasonable prices, great delivery all around Greater Sydney. So do yourselves a favor, don't cook. Order some food from bellacatering.com.au. They are going to be a company that has the staying power to survive past COVID-19, but with your help. So if you can, bellacatering.com.au, you can check them out. They are definitely friends of the show and of this series and of all One Heat Minute productions. And we're very proud that they jumped on as a sponsor to all the President's Minutes. We're happy to point people in their direction. We love them dearly. So if you guys have got a few uh, a few extra bucks and you don't want to cook, really, who the hell wants to cook right now? Um, I mean, you're just looking at that number in Victoria of coronavirus patients go up and up thinking about things shutting down, order some catering. Cater for the remaining family. You can get to your house in Sydney right now. Thank you so much for listening. Here's the show. Now more than ever, Australia cannot afford to be unreconciled. We must accept that this nation is in transition confronted by the necessity of the voice to parliament, constitutional recognition, truth-telling and agreement-making. We must avoid going down the path of seeing history as a set of competitive narratives and instead work towards the pursuit of truth and respect. We need a political settlement on questions of national independence, integrity and um, identity. 250 years of avoiding these fundamental questions has handicapped us as a nation from navigating the complex challenges before us and left us unable to capitalise on the great opportunities of uh, a future together. We feel this confusion in our public discourse with well-meaning policy objectives failing uh, to meet the expectations of modern multicultural Australia. Standards we recognise when crossed but seem unwilling to speak about Honestly, we've seen generations of political leaders come and go, blindly clutching for a sense of common ground, common identity, without addressing the darkness of dispossession and racism, keeping us chained to the ethnocentric understanding of Australia's identity, one that has never really been true. We have a system unable to understand or celebrate diversity and difference, and First Nations are left to deal with a bureaucratic machine that has often been a tool more of oppression than of liberation. The path forward has been offered to us through the Uluru Statement from the Heart. The Parliament must honour that call and listen to the torment of the powerlessness that continues to haunt this place. Only then will we continue on the path of reconciliation, built on honour, equality, recognition and respect, and free from racism. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. In Australia, we're really lucky uh, for one particular reason, and that is that um, we've got national broadcasters and specialist broadcasters, uh, so uh, you know, ABC, Australian Broadcast Corporation, and SBS, the Special Broadcast Service, um, to sort of help our minorities uh, have a voice in this country as a broadcast medium. And so it's like to have emerging voices, particularly indigenous voices um, and the weird multicultural, uh, you know, population of Australia, because really 40% of people who live in this country, uh, their parents don't, 
their parents are from another place. Um, and so that's either by many uh, uh, migrations that have happened since uh, post-World War II. And one of the outlets that has bloomed out of SBS is an outlet called NITV, which is essentially an all Aboriginal and Torres Strait, Torres Strait Islander service that has really great news reporters, great content, um, great football content. Actually, recently, even if you, if you a nice welcome respite, if you're ever a person who's ever watched a footy show in your life, actually watching Yoka footy and things like that. Um, but what's been really interesting is that in our country, while a lot of this sort of hegemonic media has been echoing these same sentiments of like nonsense and lies and denial. NITV has been a great service to sort of culturally contextualize indigenous Australian voices in the entire movement of black lives matter as it is emerging in 2020 again. And so it's kind of my pleasure to talk to any of the producers and the folk that work along with that network. And I'm really pleased today to talk to a digital editor, at NITV and the co-host of a podcast, which I love so much, the title, Take It Black, um, B-L-A-K. Um, I, 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 if I, I might, might have to take it Blake um, off of you. I, I think if I ever have another podcast in the future, if it's just a, I might call it Take It Blake um, because I think I, I, I like that. Um, he's a digital editor at NITV News. Uh, he's a podcaster. Uh, he's a writer and I'm really thankful to chat to him today. Jack Lattimore, mate, thank you so much for being a part of the show. No problem at all, Blake. I'm glad to be here. and I'm, I'm flattered that you love the title of Take It Black. Uh, I was just saying to you that I really like the concept around this podcast. <laughs> I wish I'd come up with it myself as well. And um, I think it's just got so much potential um for doing a whole bunch of things so yeah um i'm i'm glad to be here and be part of this episode yeah man look i, I folks who have been listening along to the one heat minute productions feed they know where you know we did our one heat minute show and a lot of folk were thinking at the time you know and would ask me often if, you, if you're new to the show and you're listening welcome they would say like oh you're gonna do another michael mann movie you're gonna do something and we did our little victory lap show i call last 12 minutes of the mohicans which is just a little celebration with some some of our great guests from that show, but I, I was really keen on another long form show. And if I was going to do one, I wanted something that had a, uh, the possibility for like a whole bunch of different dialogue, you know, cause, and, and, and at the time, and I sort of talked to this as we were just chatting, warming up for the show, but I was like, wouldn't it be great to do in an election year to talk about all the president's minutes, you know, to talk about all the president's men a minute at a time, because there's just so much there. You could talk to journos, you could talk to historians, you, you know, you could talk to uh, film folk, you could talk to, you know, disgraced politicians. Our country's got a few of those. We could probably get on the show maybe. And if, if you're a disgraced politician, and you're listening now, please reach out. My DMS are open. Um, but I thought, Oh, this would be interesting. And I could not have, there's no way you could ever have a crystal ball to look at the way that the world has shifted in 2020. And so what yeah. I've felt now is that the show is even more urgent to talk about because it's a, it is literally the grind of people speaking truth to power. And in the last year, you know, some of the most dynamic truth to power is people standing in front of police, holding up their phone and recording what's happening. <laughs> and that yeah. is some of the most dynamic filmmaking might be some of the most dynamic truth telling <laughs> journalism. And, and I think a lot of those, uh, 
a lot of concepts about a lot of institutions and structures that we thought were these monoliths that could never collapse. It would always be the same. This whole year has just been about like how, what, what is next? How, what is the next uh, domino uh, in this, in this thing that can fall and what can drastically change? And, and, and I think right now, even though some of the mechanisms of some really great journalism papers and things like that aren't, aren't, solvent and aren't making their money because they're so relying on ad revenue. I don't think that that's stopping unbelievable writing and reporting across a whole bunch of different channels, whether that's podcasts, whether that's stuff that you guys do at NITV, whether that's, you know, the, the, the other big publications that are surviving a subscriber basis. It's a pretty incredible time. Oh yeah. Um, it's phenomenal. And like, can we take any more this year? Firstly, <laughs> no. We're up to like the is it the third apocalypse? Is that where we're at? I mean, How many? I can't. I can't remember on my horseman of the apocalypse clock which horse <laughs> we're up to. It has to be three. It's got to be, be three. The the, the, um, the hoof from the fourth is coming. I think. By the well, end in Melbourne, time. where I'm based, we're up to the second zombie um, Jesus. apocalypse. So second lockdown. Um, we're seeing the same sorts of, um, you know, waves of people going through the toilet paper aisles of the supermarkets, you know, buying their millet and their rice, um, <laughs> you know, putting it in the bunker or the attic, um, probably buying dogs. There was a rush on pets, particularly dogs um, at one point. There's some strange shit going on. Um, and yeah, I mean, in terms of the acceleration of news media, even just in the past six months, it feels like things have changed. I mean, we're talking today across Zoom. Yes. That wasn't something not so long ago. Didn't exist. And now, you know, NITV Newsroom's got this Zoom, not this one, but we've got a Zoom account. Yes. Um, and reliant on that Zoom account for a lot of content that we would use uh, for, you know, television. Yes. Um, you know, the cameramen would be hating it and quite anxious, but, you know, sending out a team and getting those high quality images and the, you know, the, the loca on location with the lighting and all of that sort of stuff, that's gone out the window yeah. uh, through necessity. And now we're using, you know, what the, the quality of what we're looking at at each other now. You know? <laughs> um, I did a, an interview via Skype uh, in January before the COVID really, you know, spike, uh, spiked up. Yeah. Um, and that used Skype, uh, an interview with a fellow named Terry Yumble, who was located up in East Arnhem Land on country. And we used that footage um, for the, the, the television, uh, for the news bulletin um, and elsewhere for television as well as for online and yep. you know that wouldn't have been done not so long ago the, the quality alone would have been uh, dismissed um, but what it did enable was for us to tell that in, an, an important story um, that added a little bit of a corrective to something that Andrew Bolt published um, so kind of you could build a whole, a whole career doing correctives uh, on what Andrew Bolt says I mean, well, with this one, he left himself a little bit open. Actually, actually, Jack, can you can you contextualise for international listeners? Because I haven't actually spoken too much about 
Mr. Bolt. Could you, could you, could you contextualize that for folk who, who aren't aware of who he is? Cause I think, you know, there are definitely equivalencies in probably the Fox news media for American listeners out there, but uh, give, give... I think that's probably the easiest way to, and most efficient way to, to, to put it is that he's Australia's Bob Riley or yes. you know, whoever yeah. else they've got there at the moment uh, in Australia for foreign international uh, listeners um, in Australia where We've always had that element, I suppose. Like yeah. We've always had an Alan Jones or, a, you know, someone of that ilk. Yeah. Um, the other fella up there in Sydney, 2GB, um, Ray Hadley. Yeah. We've always had him, um, Neil Mitchell down where I'm at, uh, Southern State, uh, Victoria. Um, so the, we've, we've, John Laws, I suppose, is another one. We've yeah. always had a fascination and, and an appetite broadly speaking, uh, as listeners and, and viewers, uh, for that sort of um, right to hard right to ultra-conservative um, perspective on the world and um, as a purveyor of news. Um, and I guess our, you know, our export in Rupert Murdoch um, <laughs> got on to that. Like a lot of people don't know that early on Rupert Murdoch was seen as a bit of a, a lefty um, and, a, and as a bit of a progressive in terms of uh, his approach to doing things. He got out of the shadow of his old man a little bit. And um, I think over in Adelaide, uh, he was put in charge of the advertiser. If it wasn't that newspaper, it was one similarly, uh, you know, inclined at that point. And he was very progressive around uh, a case involving a young Aboriginal fellow. And there was a lot of favourable reporting um, towards this young bloke and this young fella. And it was Rupert behind it. And it was seen as quite progressive reporting uh, for that period in Australia. Something happened. He went out in the desert or something happened. And he became really, um, you know, what we know Murdoch to be today. and went internationally i think he uh he got his eye in in the uk and then you know went across to the us and established fox and fox news in particular so we have we were the prototype i guess um of the fox news phenomenon here in australia and that legacy persists um, we now have sky news after dark which is a really the last after dark show that I watched was big brother after dark. And let's be fair. We were all watching it for the TNA and for some lost bodies, attractive people doing stupid things on national television. I just feel like it's even all the more affronting that sky news has an after dark and then just pre-populates it with all of these racist people. It's, just like, it's the same dynamic as, as uh, <laughs> big brother after dark. Really? If you look at it through a particular lens or in a certain light, there's the same stuff going on there. Um, anyway, this Bolt, this Bolt character, he's got his own show uh, on Sky News after dark, and he's had a his show elsewhere, and he's got a column, and he's, he's I think, one of his um, his little sort of sprouting lines is he's Australia's most popular columnist or something along that sort of line. Folks, actually, um, I have seen. Yeah. He was in both, you know, I call one 
they're the two sides of the apocalypse now coin. I call them uh, apocalypse now. And then hearts of darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse are both better together. Uh, the documentary behind apocalypse now, and then apocalypse now the film. And I, I think that the final quarter, the Adam Goods doco, and then the Australian dream Stan Grant's accompanying doco are like the apocalypse now and hearts of darkness together. They are better because sure. The final quarter is sort of a pure hindsight commentary, and then Stan Grant's is like into the into the motivation and mindset. And and Andrew Bolt, if folks maybe internationally have seen one or both of those movies, and if you don't, if you haven't, do everything you can to seek him out. Um, absolutely incredible pieces of filmmaking, and he does feature yeah. in both of those as a political commentator. So maybe that's maybe that's where some people might have seen him before. Just think of the guy saying the most heinous things, drumming up the most, uh, the, you know, uh, the, the sort of uh, mean and um, and and mm. twisted and and continually twisted and bent perspectives on the factual things. Uh, is yeah. kind of his to gym. the point that still in Australia you have uh, notable people who put forward the proposition that Andrew might be putting it on a little bit. Yes. You know, they, still, they still go, surely he can't be that racist. Surely he can't be that, mon- that much of an unethical monster. Um, you know, the, those sorts of things are said out there, not by me, um, obviously, but you know, they're out there in a the sphere and um, there is contention around whether he's legit in a lot of these views that he holds or whether he's gaming it like, you know, we have seen uh, shock jocks do around the world from time to time. Yeah. But interestingly, Bolt himself kind of parallels uh, the trajectory of Rupert Murdoch in some ways. I think early on, maybe before he was writing, but a bit like that PJ O'Rourke over there, uh, he was seen as a bit of a lefty. Yeah. Um, he had his... Jack Kerouac moment where he went hitching around Australia. Um, and, and at some point he's decided or positioned himself, um, uh, you know, in the conservative corner. And that's, he found some success in doing that. And, and increasingly, you know, I would put, you know, I would submit increasingly went in that direction as the success grew. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's funny in both instances, we've just talked about Rupert Murdoch and Andrew Bolt. What is the Australian outback when these guys see, you know, indigenous, indigenous history talks about, or indigenous culture talks about a walkabout as an, as a moment of manhood and enlightenment. <laughs> what, yeah. what backward shit happened to these guys? May they must've been broken in their souls and their brains to go out for these moments of enlightenment and then coming back and going, I understand how to manipulate this. I understand how to game this system and I don't have to be, I don't have to be moral about it because the morality is not as important as money. And that feels like both of those guys bolt. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't contend that same. I, th- I think he's, he's a bit of an egomaniac, which is why people probably think of the consistency of his act is, you know, that it's just an act and behind closed doors, he might be different, but uh, Murdoch is an interesting one. It is pure. It feels like money is the only thing that runs through that man's veins, you know, so that concept yeah. of money. So it's very and winning and winning. winning. Yeah. Like he will jump behind, uh, you know, in Australia, two party, uh, two major party sort of political system. And he will swap, jump and you know, swap horses midstream, whatever, as long as uh, he is you know, behind the inevitable winner. 
sometimes yeah. you know, perhaps craft through his newspaper and his media empire. He owns about, I uh, don't know what it's up to, but it's above 80% concentration in Australia's media. It'd probably be 80 above 85% now. I'm not too certain of where yeah, we're at. Since, since the, he- the, the Herald slash, is that age in Melbourne? Have I got that right? I got that right. The Herald Sun. No, yep. the age went to nine entertainment. Oh, nine. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Herald Sun was there. Yeah. So he's about 80, yeah, 85 when you count the, the, the television as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, that particular program, Sky News After Dark, ended up uh, being taken on by regional broadcasters, Win, I think. So around regional Australia, outside of the metropolitan areas, you, uh, you know, if you're that way inclined, you're able to tune in and watch Sky News After Dark on your free-to-air television as well. Um, you can probably add that it is a part of Australia's cable or you know, paid. Yeah, paid. Yeah, but it's leaked out in the free-to-air. And um, recently, he offloaded a bunch of regional papers, or they folded. Um, so. Look, in terms of direction and where those people in those regional areas or zones would now access their points of news um, is up in the air a little bit. Uh, They may go to the internet. We don't have great internet coverage uh, in the bush, um, particularly not uh, everywhere in the bush. A regional hub may have pretty good coverage, but then say two or three kilometres outside of that regional hub, there is no signal whatsoever. So... I guess they're then funneled towards purchasing newspapers um, from the local newsage of the hard copy of which we have two. Uh, Rupert's newspapers, the big metro ones, which are pretty rabid and um, in the same vein, as I would argue, in the same vein as the Sky News After Dark sort of stuff, uh, or Nine Entertainment, which was formerly owned by a company or corporation named Fairfax, and uh, they folded. Um, and were bought out by Nine Entertainment. Now, we've seen a trend towards conservative end of the spectrum with both uh, of their main mastheads in the newspaper world, uh, which is The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. So there's not a, you know, off the shelf, there's not a lot of option um, there for Australians. And we do have the Saturday paper, which would be seen as being, you know, the far left rag or something <laughs> like that, which um, is provided, uh, you know, is the, I guess it's a bit of a folly for a fellow that um, would, I would sort of position him as a bit of a centrist, a political centrist. Um, but yeah, that's viewed as some sort of lefty, extreme lefty type thing in Australia. So there's not a lot of option. That would not be stocked at most regional newspapers or no. news agencies. No, and... And it, I, I think the word that I love the most there was when you said it is leaked from cable. <laughs> just, it, it feels like a leak. It feels like a stain because yeah, like the, those, the Sydney Morning Herald and the age were definitely more in, in opposition and in opposition to the, the Murdoch papers um, in those towns. What is heartening though, and there seems to be a few more of them popping up is that there are big enough local bush communities 
um, or just rural communities in general who are starting up like these really threadbare operations, like three or four journos just on the ground in the town and doing like a weekly news roundup for the local areas and are getting subscriptions and things like that and local advertisers in to actually just keep themselves solvent on their scale. So looking at a local town paper. So we're seeing a few more of those pop up and being independent, which is unreal. It's happening, you know, all around the world, but it's happening. I think now five or six by my account that I've been following along um, in Oz and actually keen, if anyone's actually listening, you know, off the back of listening to Jack and I talk today or any other podcast, please reach out because I'd love to talk to you about, you know, literally doing the fastidious on the ground, local journalism, city beat in your own town during this crazy crisis. I'd love to talk to you. But I think that that's, you know, you'd speak to a, you speak a challenge. People talk about like the complete dilution or diffusion of media in, in different countries. Um, and in the U S you know, uh, you know, it's either, I think it's the MSNBC slash CNN side or Fox news. It kind of feels like the left and the right. Um, but in Oz, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely very, very similar. And now also, like you said, it's, it's moving even away from the left and just plonking itself on the center. It's like our very central circular, uh, thing happening. Um, all around. There's another dangerous thing that's happening here, and that is because of that scenario, um, we have a heavy reliance on social media to provide news. Yes. And as everyone around the world would know, the you know, problems with that, you know, particularly with Facebook. But um, I guess Facebook's still massive here, um, massive. as it was back in 2014, 20, you know, 2012 to 2014, I think it peaked. It definitely did for me. And then I migrated across uh, to Twitter. And now we see in Australia, at least Twitter going the same way that Facebook was back then, which was really uh, tribal um, and toxic. And there's a lot of, not, there's a lot of misinformation on there, um, but there's a lot of distortion as well. Um, and just the general uh, fosters a sentiment of, um, of, of tribalism, um, but people, uncritical thinking, you know, people will, and, you know, left and right and center, like right across the, <laughs> the whole smorgasbord, but people will just take stuff on and um, pieces of information get distorted really quickly. and. Um, high risk of becoming something that it's not in in terms of interpretation and, and perspective. And um, there's a lot of credence given to the weight of things that occur on social media, particularly yes. Twitter. Um, and you see that play, like re-enter um, the social sphere uh, the, or the public sphere and, and have an effect there as well, which again is, is, is something new, some sort of technological affordance that has been you know in that really rapid acceleration over the last you know, five years and particularly in the last couple of years so yeah weird times um and slippery slopes <laughs> weird times and slippery slopes indeed well look let's let's dive into this minute which is yep. if a uh if we're talking about slippery slopes we're talking about a bit of a macca's regroup which I think is a fun concept to think about being on the road, just grinding and being like, I'm going to eat crappy Maccas because there's nothing else for me to do. They look like hell. These guys have been on the road, knocking on doors, trying to appeal across moral lines to people to speak out about a crooked president. And so I think, uh, I think having a Maccas meal 
is probably the only, uh, around so many people is probably the only thing that feels aged about what we're about to talk about. Jack. <laughs> so I think uh, let's, uh, let's, let's dive into Alan J. Pakula and Robert Redford's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. This is minute 71. And, uh, and my guest, Jack Lattimore, and I are going to listen along to it now. You guys are going to listen along too. And then we're going to come back and talk about it. Carolyn. We're just doing something wrong. Never been there. No. We're doing something wrong. It's just not good enough. How can you keep going at something past the point when you believe it? You just have to start all over again. Naismith. Narrow. Ness. Nichols. Nixon. Somebody that worked for finance to talk. I can't believe. What about the bookkeeper? Which bookkeeper? The bookkeeper that worked for both Slans and. Oh, you're all right. Sloan and Stan. I've been there. I called her twice. There's no answer. I see. We should start again. How do you keep going past the point that you don't believe it? Start all over again. What? If that is not the ethos of this entire film, it's so. Sometimes by happy accident, a conversation that we're having to preamble a minute, I just think matches so perfectly with the ethos of the minute, which is how do you keep going? You just start again and you keep going. You keep going because it's there. It's that compelling. And applicable to everything across the board. Yes. Yeah. In terms of news, that minute, and I'll just add that the movie itself, I hadn't seen since probably 2011, 2012. Yeah. Um, it is one of those that, you know, back then I would come home and, and put on, you know, after a few beers and fall asleep on the couch and, you know, wake up and it'd be finished or whatever. <laughs> um, so I've kind of seen it in various, you know, several states of mind. <laughs> <laughs> it was good to go back to watch um, the minute first. Um that you designated and then in a really um un, how can i can best way to describe this in an uh, unenviable sobriety yeah. <laughs> uh, that a lockdown has provided me um, <laughs> to watch the entire film and uh it was just little elements i watched it with headphones on on an ipad um, so it was high fidelity in terms of sound, picking up things that I wouldn't have picked up in certain states of mind from across the lounge room. Um, so it was like watching it for the first time, really. Um, and I've just finished reading Seymour Hersh's uh, biography or autobiography, memoirs, um, not, uh, about a month ago. Um, so, you know, in terms of the actual political context, I, I got a lot more out of it. So... Firstly, thank you for making me do that. Um, That's my pleasure. My pleasure. Both, <laughs> bo- bo- both uh, completely understand and empathise that the, it is a perfect, comforting, warm blanket of a movie that when nothing else seems like you want to go to sleep to or nothing else you want in your mind, you can find great comfort in this movie, which I understand on a deep level. But also that is my 
um, uh, being able to welcome more people into the state of like watching every frame of this masterpiece with a heightened level of awareness um, is so enriching for me. And so whenever I get to hear and talk to folk who actually have the same experience, it's so awesome. I feel like like that. Well, if, if, got me. if I own the social that, dialogue, the yes. conversational yeah. dialogue, like that, how do, how do they do that back there? Like was it, was it a lot of the improv or um, was it, you know, was it scripted that way? I've never read the script. I wouldn't know, but uh, William Goldman is the Academy Award winning screenwriter who is behind incredible movies like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and the Princess Bride. And is probably is, is actually more famously sort of known as like, a, I think Bill Simmons, the American sporting journalist calls him the, the Dean of screenwriters. I think is that's how he described him as, as like, you look at some of the people who he took under his wing and mentor. They're like Aaron Sorkin, David Fincher, mm-hmm. Um, there, there are these people who he's had these phenomenal impacts on who are now making their own waves many, many years later. And you know, what's so funny is he spent, he read the book, obviously all the president's men that the story is based off of and spent a lot of time in the newsroom himself writing how these guys talked on just how people talked in the newsroom at the time. And, and one of his early drafts of the script, which he said the entire process was torture by the way, <laughs> retroactively. Um, but he said that he said they took jokes out because people were funny. Like people were just in the newsroom and just shooting the shit and sounded really natural. And they kept taking elements of humor away and kept that conversational nature and kept it happening and just, and allowed the style of, you know, allowed Redford style and Hoffman style to influence and imprint on the script and the dialogue and keep tweaking it and adding things and pulling it back. And yeah, I th- it's, it's one of those weird films that I say in complete stark contrast to the film I did in depth previously heat, which I think is a Michael Mann film. So innately and in depth in a way that is just unfathomable to most people. Um, this is a movie of alchemy. Like, the script is there. Woodward and Bernstein's story is there. All these great actors give something, just give something. And the direction by Alan J. Pakula and the cinematographer, Gordon Willis, just everything, all these people have in their inputs. It all just clashes and the mix of all these flavors together um, is magic. And I agree with you. Just the, just shooting the shit, smiling at someone, saying a joke. Do you, is there any way you don't smoke? Just everything about this movie. Uh, I, I, Walking I, over each other. Yeah, <laughs> like and it worked. Yes, it was it provided so much um, in those in the scenes, you know, where they're they're at the door um, of the 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 source who was part of the committee. Yes, um, and they're trying to convince her, uh, you know, to, to go on the record and speak to them, and they're talking over one another and trying to work her. And you've got Dustin Hoffman's character, you know, really working. You can probably hear some building going out the back of my house. Um, <laughs> Really working, you know, the angle, uh, the full of the gut feeling and all of this sort of thing, and the more methodical Robert Redford character, um, you know, ethically upright, and um, <laughs> it was just yeah, the dynamic between the two was was fantastic. A, l- a little, hi- a ending. little, a little hint that I say to you just before we go- jump onto the ending is one thing I learned about this and I like to bring it up when we talk about just the way that they can talk over each other is both these guys, when there's sort of a, um, I had a, 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 a film critic friend of mine on the show and he said, tip of the Dolberg is a phrase he used, which is when the Dolberg conversation, he says the tip of the iceberg of the movie, because they, everything after that, these guys are together. And, um, 
they both learned each other's lines for the rest of the movie so that they could actually interrupt each other. And I, I just think it's such a, it's a dedicated thing for two guys to do for, for the effect that you're talking about, which is that I know what line you're going to say anyway. And it's, and, and you would imagine that they've just, they're just making something happen. You watch it happen in sport. You watch it happen with people, great people you work with. It's like, you know what they're going to say and you go, I know you're going to say this. I know you're going to say this. So I'm just going to say it ahead of you. And you sort of jump each other and uh, jump over each other rather. And I, I think that that's just such a great technique that I just don't see, you don't see enough of it in moot, like in contemporary. No. Like, well, it's interesting. You mentioned Sorkin. Now he is the guy behind newsroom, right? Newsroom, West Wing, West Wing. West Wing. There was a lot of that in, in newsroom. I'm not yeah. as familiar with West Wing. Yeah. Newsroom, newsroom, he loves it. He loves, Sorkin is like fast paced, like extremely quick, talking over each other. And David Fincher is Zodiac um, uh, as well. And, uh, and they both collaborated together on the social network. So those sort of things of teams of people shooting the shit, talking over each other, interrupting each other, um, you know, that, that, alchemy of how they work yeah it's it's really great but you, you were about to talk about the ending of the film well the i was going to talk about the ending for the same appeal i guess as what yes. that sort of scenario um provides for me and it's it reminds me of working in a newsroom and all of the energy and the adrenaline around working they're not even in a newsroom but in with people and in groups you know where the, the that dynamic is present but the ending um, with the typewriter, yes, um, just tapping out, you know, the last few lines, the the uh, the ticker tape, reminiscent of the ticker tape. There's just so much of that typewriter that, that got me, that hooked me. I'd never realised it before. I was kind of watching it the other night. It was late at night, as I said, had my headphones on. It was really intimate. And then you know the ending happened. And it went to black. I just went, that was awesome. <laughs> That was so awesome. <laughs> I've got to go and write something, you know, and it's just, I don't know, all of the little sort of ritual, all of the paraphernalia, um, there was just so much there that, you know, for journalists particularly, just goes, all right, let's get to work. You know? Yeah, back, back to work. The movie doesn't end there for journalists. It's like, oh, all right, let's get into it. Yeah. And, and I and guess, for, yeah, for that's, so many people are, are into it for that, for that reason, you know. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to say there's a great there's a great quote from the great Roger Ebert, one of the greatest film critics who've ever lived, and uh, his great quote is like, "When a movie ends, my work's only just beginning." And I just love yeah. that phrase of like that that's that's the same charge that journalists feel at the end of this movie, but I think it's the same charge that great film critics feel when they see any any movie that moves them. And sometimes it moves you in a bad way, but I think even more so when a movie makes you sore and it like charges you with something, it's like, oh my God, I can't wait to get to work. I can't wait to get to work. I've just got to keep, I've got to, I've got to go and wrangle with how this thing made me feel. But I think that this movie all the time, that's why I, you know, some people ask me where I get energy to do the show. I'm like, just, have you seen the movie? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Have you seen the movie? Well, what other, that left me thinking what other movies of this, you know, what would you call it? Like newspaper movies, journalist movies, political yeah. thrillers, whatever it might be. What other ones got me um, that I could recall? Um, and I couldn't really come up with one in particular. Like even um, what was the one about set in Boston there? Oh, Spotlight. Spotlight. Spotlight is a contemporary one, yeah. 
I've heard the the ones that I've heard the list is um and they don't and they do different things. Like Spotlight is the more I don't know, it's like a bit of an interior movie because it's like this stuff's all happening and this has been used. And I think actually Spotlight has actually probably grown grown a little bit in people's conceptions recently because it's like there are things that systemically are wrong that are present in all culture. And I think sometimes when you take it to a microcosm of a town, like you can go, there are things systemically wrong with my town and, and we should have, we should have had that responsibility. So it carries that weight and that guilt of we didn't do anything. Maybe not we as individuals, but we collectively should have kept this in check. And how did we let this happen? And I think that's a great quandary for journalism movies. The other one that people talk about, um, which is probably for emerging journalists is uh, shattered glass, which is the, it's a Hayden Christensen movie about, the, the journalist who makes up his stories and then his editor sort of ends up holding him to account. So it's like a cautionary tale about like the worst thing that yeah. can happen. Again, not a very glamorizing journalist story at all. Um, and, and then from filmmaker Michael Mann, which a lot of folks mentioned on this show, The Insider, which is about like corporate entanglement with journalism, very prescient to today, like telling great stories and then it being strangled by fear of uh, reprisal almost like, you know, reprisal from some company suing you for the wrongs for the story getting out. Um, and, and then you do have to go back. Like you got it like in the same year as presidents as network, you know, the mm-hmm. how Bill mad as hell like that, that is a journalism story one oh one, And it, it felt like a fantasy and a fallacy. Now you watch it and you're like, that's scarily accurate. <laughs> it's, it's really scary. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it, it, as a genre, and, and journalism stuff like it doesn't pop up the only other one the big one that gets mentioned on this show i think is the wire like that fifth season of the wire which shows real, yeah the real trajectory of journalists in the newsroom right on the cusp of like paper versus digital versus mm. morality um yeah and and the guy who plays the dodgy journalist in that fifth season of the wire tom mccarthy is the director of spotlight um so yeah. so, so, so uh, the circle is complete, the circle is complete. <laughs> Well, the other one, uh, another TV show that um, it got me, at least. Mm. I don't know how widely it's recognised as doing the same sort of thing and charging journalists to get into their work is an Australian series called Frontline. Oh, which hilarious. is absolutely taking the Mickey out of uh, broadcast journalism and bad journalism, bad decisions. But there's just so much that I walk away with. Uh, from those episodes and that's that's something that I bought um, on DVD so I can watch it repeatedly Um, but yeah I mean if you were in America or UK go and dial up Frontline it stars Rob Sitch it's produced by their team at Working Dog and the Frontline is such a powerful show in Australia that uh, that the weird fuckery that occasionally happens on like uh, mainstream current affairs shows Frontline was so good that it made people forget what current affairs actually did that wasn't on Frontline and then also predicted really weird things that a current affairs shows did. And you're like, wait, was that an episode of Frontline? Yes, it was. What, like, I can't believe this is actually happening on television. But it's, yeah, I totally agree. It is a, uh, a seminal show for me, a, gr- a great show. I can't distinguish what actually happened in eighties slash early nineties, uh, current yeah. affairs broadcasting in this country <laughs> because I always think of frontline. And you still see it flash up. Um, yeah. 
certain stories and the same sorts of cock-ups or yes. you know, the same sorts of um, unethical approaches to telling the story or sourcing the talent, you know, it's still there. And as you say, that was back in uh, 93, 92, something like yeah. that. Yeah, definitely. Early nineties. Those guys came out, came all up together at that time. Um, uh, at, at late eighties was the the D generation. Yeah, not uh, on ABC ninety four. Ninety four was the first. Yeah, yeah. yeah. May ninety four. Well, I remember watching it around the. Uh, it was the year I went into university to start this whole <laughs> this whole uh, trajectory. <laughs> so yeah, it obviously made an impression on me back then and. It's still something I return to as a touchstone. But look, getting back to this minute, um, what got me about the minute is uh, the resilience of the two. You know, that for those people that just need a clarification on the minute, they've gone, they've identified a, uh, a political funding finance committee. And correct me if I'm wrong, right? Yeah, but, no, no. Uh, they've gone through. They've, they're trying to narrow. They're trying to get someone on record um, to give them some details around. Because what the, was done on the, the overall team is the committee to re-elect the president, and they've isolated just the people that are involved in finance. Because you know, from from deep throat saying follow the money, it's like if we just get someone to get on the record for us in this finance thing, or at least put us on the right track, we'll go further. They've gone to this. Um, uh, I I I have to just quickly see who uh, uh, who my guest was. I think it was in the previous episode to you, James Oliphant. So I, I I can spoil it. He called her a Janet, you know, a prototypical Janet. They go to someone's house who is actually kind of this conspiratorial white woman who feels like she she's the source in the story, but really she's just a consumer of the story. And she's she welcomes them in. <laughs> she, she's <a> complete. <laughs> red I'm glad you're here. <laughs> she's a complete red herring, right? She's the, she's, it's the worst, but that, that, that seems like the straw that broke camel's back. But yes, the committee to reelect the president is the sort of the umbrella organization that Nixon has been orchestrating all this nastiness out of, and they're trying to narrow down the finance and that they are literally, they've gone to everyone on this list now at ad nauseum and they've gone after the people in finance and they simply cannot get anyone even close to, you know, not slamming the door in their face, except for a red herring who we see the culmination of in the beginning of this. Movie. And it's, it's really taken the wind out of Dustin oh. Hoffman Bernstein. Yes. Uh, he's, he was the buoyant one. He was the optimistic one in right up to this point, And he's just slumped in the McDonald's booth. And he says something like, How, we can't go on. How do you keep going on yeah. when you know you don't have it and we're never going to get it? And that's probably the pivotal point where the Rob Redford, um, Woodward, Wood, is that the, yeah, well, Woodward, he, yeah. he, he actually takes, takes the front running and says, you know, we're going to get this, we're going to get it. We just got to start Which, again. Um, yeah, we're going to yeah, start again, go back to resilience, go through over the, the names uh, all over again. And I think that for me, um, you know, inspirational moment, uh, significant moment 100%. on every story, you know, that we work on when you, when you don't have it, um, when elements of stories that you just need a missing ingredient to, and what do you do? You just spike them or, you know, go in and, and have another crack. And I think, yeah, that's that minute. That's what I got out of it. 
I think you're so right. And I love what you said there around. There's a moment where you, especially the impulse that there's something there. Cause I think that that's Jack, when you said like, that's, there's a missing ingredient. The missing implies to me, like, you know, this, you know, it's like, it would be like making a meal or a cake or something. And you're like, something's wrong. Like there's just something <laughs> So like I've, I have all the ingredients are here or there's just one ingredient that's not here and I don't know what's going on. And it's just that it's not doing what it should do. And I think that the, like, like you said, that meticulousness and it must feel like a punish and the wind is out of you and you're right. The slump, everything about it, late night in a Macca's in Washington, just the decor, the yellow, like they feel, they feel like teeth that need to be brushed. These two guys in this room, right? There's the whole color palette of the room looks like I'm tired. I'm, I'm sallow. I'm just knackered. I don't want to be here. I've been in a car all day. It's Washington summer. It's hot, you know, from folk I've spoken to who live in Washington or, or have worked in Washington. It's like, it gets hot. So it's hot, sticky. I'm in a car all day. I'm, I'm outside. I'm taking the corduroy off. I'm getting it back on. But just that, <laughs> but, but that, that for me is that, that exercise of, I know there's something missing and I've got to run. We have to run it back. We have to run it back because if we don't run it back, I'm going to, I'm going to regret it. I've got to go again. There's there's another element that's important. It's the first time they're openly discussing this case. Yes. Without fear of people. I think at this point they're worried about being followed. They're at least cognizant of the fact that People are unhappy with them following this line, whether it's their news editors or whether it's the pressure that the news editors are getting from the White House. But here they are in a McDonald's restaurant, openly <laughs> discussing the case. Uh, there's people in the booths next to them and they kind of, you get the impression, it's not said, but you get the impression that they know that the general American populace doesn't give a rat. Yes. You know? They're not interested in the story and they can be open in that sort of scenario. And it becomes like some of the greatest moments of the film are them strategizing. So here it's like them getting themselves back together and, and having that candor to talk. And that fear certainly comes in later in the film, but it's like, this leads to the next great conversation, which is after the incredible bookkeeper scene, which is what we're talking about, which is them strategizing how to get more information out of the bookkeeper. Well, if you say this, no, okay. So what I'm going to do is you're going to say this and then I'm going to say, okay, cool. And it's, it's really where you start to see how, how these guys complement each other, because it's like in that moment you needed Woodward's stubbornness and just like fortitude, like this is going to happen. Um, and, and, you know, and Hoffman had been buoyant more tenaciously that we're going to get this story some, some way, somehow before that. But yeah, I, you're so right. You don't need to say anything as, and this is the mastery of this whole movie. You don't need to say that these guys feel like no one cares because talking about it openly says everything. And then them back yeah. in the car. And this is a great, it, it's part of this beautiful, just purely artistic tracking shot to music of their car getting back out on the road the music soaring, the David Shire score, which just pops up and it comes in really tactical moments in the movie. It's kind of nowhere in the movie and then it's right upon you and you're swarming in it. And it comes into this big tracking shot, which essentially is, you know, it's led by this moment, but then it's hammered home, which is this whole city is still moving. It's still breathing. People are still commuting. The lights are still on. The president's still working. 
And these little guys, these little guys in this one little tiny car are just going to get dwarfed by this entire city, by this entire story, by this entire country. It's, it's, it's like you are, if you weren't already ants, if you weren't already pushing shit uphill, like you, this is that moment that you're, you're like, you really are desperate for the break. You are desperate for the break coming up. Yeah, well, it's um, the other aspect is early on, the editors actually say to them, don't they? Like, no one's going to be interested in this. No one cares. It's, it's, it's got nothing. It's, it's a break-in. Like, so what? Um, and it's just as the diff- sequentially, each new layer or element of evidence or detailed story comes in that it begins to snowball for them. Um, yeah, and they're working as just machine parts in it until the end when the actual machine part hammers out, you know, uh, until, the, until the machine hammers out something, yeah, than the movie, something, something bigger than the movie. Yeah. Which we're still seeing right now over in the States in terms of, you know, some of the behavior between you know, the Nixon esque type period and, and what we see with um, Trump around particularly civil rights for the BLM movement. Uh, most notably, getting the streets outside the White House cleared uh, with pepper spray and non-lethal projectiles or whatever they, you know, that ordinance is called. So you can get a photo shoot in front of uh, the church that he never attended. The whole time he's been and, and, that the, and that the preacher then went on to national media going, he's never been there. He didn't ask yeah. for permission. He held the Bible upside down and he shot some of my parishioners to move away. Like there are some of the people who attend my church that got shot away with ordinance to get away from the church just so we could have a photo opportunity. But in terms of a defining scene, defining visuals, mm. that shot of him, a uh, side sort of profile shot of him in his ungainly gate walking mm. along the sidewalk behind him the streets being cleared you've got the the cops with the, the shotguns and whatever else the shields the riot uh gear that they're, they're, they're clad up in you got trump being trailed by the the heads of state and and you know whoever else was there all white you know, and just his ungainly gait as he's traipsing towards the the church. I mean, to me, that was as evocative as the Richard Nixon uh, V for victory, shaking hands at the top of the the uh, the staircase as he's getting on the plane. You know, a mo like weeks or days before he was uh, he resigned in disgrace. I think the one thing we can be thankful of with Richard Nixon in hindsight is that the man felt shame. Yeah. That, well, that, that, that feels the, the major inversions. There's a couple of things I say just to make you amused. Imagine Richard Nixon with Twitter. It's always a fun game. It's always a fun game. Whenever you hear about him, imagining him with a, a man who kept a list of his enemies, imagine him with Twitter. You know, I don't, you can't say he's better than Trump necessarily because he didn't have Twitter. So we can't ever, it's only just a fun thought bubble game you can play. Um, well, back to the film, that moment in the scene in the film where he puts the call in to, um, uh, was it the, the senator or somebody that he spoke to and he got him 
late at night, or at least this guy was already yeah. asleep and we had yeah. a few to drink, <laughs> and he gave up more than he. It was essentially it was a it was a drunken tweet, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. She's going to get a titty cotton and big ringer. Um, uh, it's 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 those it's those things you imagine. You go, oh my god, and you know, I what I've loved about watching and following you guys on NRTV and watching what you're doing is that, you know, in America right now, some of the great truths to power and, and, and there is a tipping point. There is starting to be an erosion with the collective weight of things like black lives matter with things like obviously the handling of COVID-19 and, and the pandemic in the States is it's like scorched earth, you know, like it's, I mean, I don't know about you. I'd say to a few folk like around this time this year, you know, so we're in July as we're recording this and you guys are going to hear it in July. Um, I was planning on going to the States. I was planning on going at the end of summer, hanging out with some friends, seeing people, staying there, you know, maybe recording a few face-to-face podcasts with some great folk and going to see some movies at the new Beverly in LA and, you know, watch some stuff and be lucky enough to just travel and think about doing that. And I can't even like, I'm like, it's, it's definitely not this year, but maybe it's not even next year that you can go back, you know? Um, and you know, with, with, with Trump in power and, and, and just, you know, refusing to engage with people on something like black lives matter. And then three weeks later, he's like advertising beans on the white house's desk because someone says something nice about him in the media. It's just like, what, yeah. what is this man? What, what is, what is this? What is this, this office come to in the country's yeah. most influ- in the world's most influential country? Um, it's, it's pretty incredible. It's surreal. There's an element of surrealism around it. Yes. I think. Um, look, leading, just to touch on what you were saying then, despite COVID and the travel restrictions that have you know, been in place around the globe, I had the opportunity to go to the States um, just prior to, around the time that Trump got in, actually. Yes. Um, and then again, a few, say, six months later, the same opportunity, you know, uh, rehashed and it was an opportunity to go there. Um, and it was to spend time with the founders of the BLM movement um, yeah. and and travel uh, between cities and between organisers um, to get uh, you know, an understanding, a workshop, and, and just familiarise myself with the BLM movement over there, the people, the, the prominent sort of figures um, in that movement. Um, and there were various sort of iterations of how this would occur whether it be a group of uh, young indigenous or you know australian people of color that went over there and we did it as a group uh through to me just going over there by myself and hanging out with patrice and rodney and and, and those sorts of people who i'd met when they come over to australia to collect the sydney peace prize i think it was um we'd spent some time hanging out so yeah it was all fairly familiar there was a lot of incentive to go over Yes. And I, I didn't because of Trump. Um, there's not much that I could do or more generally that Australian people who oppose the sorts of things that Trump embodies could do uh, to protest, um, you know, his presidency. Um, and it just felt to me that um, boycotting him, the travel to the US was just one of those things, not, not putting um, you know, my travel dollars over there or yeah. whatever it might be. So that's the reason why I 
haven't, and I still haven't been to the States either. But that's the reason why I didn't go across. Um, now with COVID, I'm not going to get there, but also, you know, it would have been the BLM movement, you know, the uprisings um, in the last two or three months now. Um, they would have been great, but to be a part of, to observe, um, to be near the people that had fought, you know, and organised since 2012, um, probably before that, but certainly since uh, Trayvon uh, Martin was murdered, um, it would have been, you know, such a incredible experience to be, you know, in that environment at that particular time. And uh, yeah, that's the sorts of things that Trump prevents in the world, you know, just by him holding that office. Yeah, um, and but also such a hindrance. But also to the to the time your the times that you're going over there, Jack is like, you know, that puts you there for Charlottesville. You know what I'm saying? Like if you if you go over there at that time, talk about upheaval. Like I mean. COVID has, it's like a magnifying glass. It's an, it's an exacerbation. It just like ups the dose of what, in my mind, it ups the dose of whatever's happening. So like the, the surge of the surge of protests and uprising is, is because the concentrated thing, you know, there's like 20% unemployment in America and, and people are, you know, people are angered and they can't, there's, there's no jobs to distract them. There's none of these minor distractions that we can get away with that are like, Oh, it'll help diffuse how I'm feeling. It's like, it's in your face every single day. The whole place is shut down. I, you know, I feel compelled to do these things. And, and, you know, I, I look at something like that. And when you say that I, I can, I completely empathize and agree. And also, especially if you go on a hangout in the middle of the black lives movement, like the Charlottesville stuff happens. It's just ha- like it happened within the first year of his presidency. It's like, Oh yeah, they're good people on both, you know, bad people on both sides. And you're like, what are you talking about? There are yeah. more Nazis marching through the streets. Well, the other thing that we see here is the rise of fascism and Nazism uh, yes. in Australia, particularly in the Southeast of Australia. I'm yes. not sure about elsewhere, but particularly in Victoria and particularly in Melbourne and certain suburbs in Melbourne to nail it even yeah. be more specific. Um, around the BLM uprisings and the Aboriginal Lives Matter movement here, I mean, that provided personally for, for me not being able to um, observe what was happening over uh, in the States, but also as an organization, a news organization, NITV, um, provided an interesting, uh, parallel, I suppose, um, contrast point to what was happening in the U S and the sorts of things Trump was saying. We had, uh, our PM, um, say that, you know, going to 2GB with Ray Hadley, um, to say that we shouldn't be in, uh, importing the sorts of issues that were behind the BLM uprisings over there, which, you know, like a lot of Aboriginal people, my jaw just dropped open and you sort of hand come up <laughs> to the forehead. Um, at oh, what point have we ever stopped <laughs> having those same issues? That's the Patrick Stewart face palm gif is yeah. the whole of 2020. Yeah. But it's like, why are we importing it? And it's like, what are you talking about? No yeah. one's, no one's addressing it. Like no one's even yeah. remotely addressing it. And this is the other, the other frustration is 
for however we as people felt about Scott Morrison getting the office, being in the office, being morally opposed to his, you know, his views of the world, essentially. Um, we're very fortunate that as a country, the leader decided that when we were discussing how we should resolve our response to COVID-19, they deferred their guidance to people who are trained to do that. And basically we just towed the line of our chief medical officer in the country or medical officers in the country and around the different States around how we should deal with these things. And I just think it, isn't that a novel approach? I mean, it sounds so stupid maybe to you and I like stupidly obvious, but like, if you are talking about race relations and you want some clarity, is there not someone, you know, Dave Chappelle jokes, like you got to take your Mac mittens. You know, he talks about his mate, like someone from the streets coming in when he meets Hollywood people. Like, don't you have someone there if you're like talking about indigenous affairs that is in your cabinet that actually has a line into someone who's an expert. Like before I say this dumb thing, I, I should at least road test it with a mate who maybe can help articulate what is a confidant to say, well, this is what I would say. I wouldn't say that. I would say, look, it's a complicated, maybe just even saying it's a complicated issue and we don't have the same situation as the United States, but we do absolutely have ways to go. We can progress further. We can be better. Like there's inspirational things that you can take from it. Even if he's not morally obligated to be backing it or, or doesn't necessarily agree on, on certain levels. It's like, just take the, take the more diplomatic road, be the bigger leader and say, we are not perfect. We have a ways to go. You know, there's a great clip. I actually might introduce our entire episode to it of Justin Trudeau being asked about Donald Trump's response to Black Lives Matter at a press conference. He's the Prime Minister of Canada, for folks who don't know. And he took somewhere like 20 seconds of deliberating, not talking, just going and thinking. And it was so refreshing. Oh, someone needed to think before they said something. That's nice. That's really nice. Well, I, I heard a lot of criticism around that at the time that it was very performative and all of that sort yes. of thing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It was. It was exactly what was needed. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he might have put some shine on it, but also it's like have some thought. And if people interrogate us, like, look, I was genuinely thinking about what the best response was. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, it surprises me that um, you say uh, the cabinet or the advisors of the PM, um, you know, should be in his ear saying maybe, you know, if, if you do get this question, there's a few talking points that you want to bring up. What surprises me is that for the past, certainly leading up to May 18 last year, the, the election, so many of these politicians, the PM included, went on listening to us to Aboriginal communities or Aboriginal regions or Aboriginal leaders or families, you know, and you'd hear it in uh, the media coverage all the time, you know, whether it was Turnbull going up to Tennant Creek or the PM, you know, going somewhere else. Abbott was getting around as a special envoy of Aboriginal people. God. The Tudor advocate of skewered Uncle Tony Abbott, as they called him for months. And it's been one of my great internet joys. Uh, um, I think if you haven't, if you just type in Batuta advocate, B-E-T-O-O-T-A advocate, it's essentially Australia's answer to the onion and Tony Abbott, yeah. um, who is 
deeply conservative, arguably, or probably inarguably racist, misogynistic, former prime minister of this country, um, and just an all round idiot. Um, uh, uh, being appointed with an Indigenous Affairs uh, moniker prior to his uh, eventual down, demise from politics. It was just the, one of the most laughable appointments almost of all time in Australian politics. No, no, no. More laughable, more laughable is him recently getting an Order of Australia medal for that role. <laughs> well, he did give, he did, didn't he, he did give uh, Prince Philip the Order of Australia or some nonsense. Yeah, he like, brought- he brought the whole concept back um, two or three years, whatever period of time it's been. He gets the actual award for something as idiotic as what giving one of Prince Philip was in the first place. I mean, Bruce McAvaney, a <laughs> comment over here. We call it um, synch- what, what is synchronicity, <laughs> delicious synchronicity. <laughs> This is the first mention of Bruce McAvaney on this show, and uh, I'm, happy, I'm, all, I'm all about it. I'm all about it. Um, Bruce yeah. has got a lot to offer. But, um, but, but I, no, I, I think, but I think you're so right, and this is part of the, you know, part of what I've relished about the show is just having the dialogue that, you know, in our country, in Australia, there's so much deflection and it's very easy to do. There's a lot of deflection to be able to say, oh, United States is like this, and I want to I talk to everyone who's listening to the show. I don't want to be that person who is ever in any way looking down on people's um, you know, looking down on people's other countries or how other countries have acted or who they've elected with any kind of uh, superiority complex, because Australia has our own stack of idiots that have ran this country and, or, or people who you may have been morally opposed to that have done great things in politics. Um, uh, you know, you know, John Howard, who is one of our longest serving prime ministers of all time is, is arguably has a lot of questionable stuff on international politics has done some really heinous things for refugees, but the guy got guns out of this country. So I don't have to worry when I walk my kids down a street in Sydney that they're going to get shot or that if they, if, and when they go to school, um, which is a couple of years away from my oldest, that that's, that's a concern for them. So, I, I mean, I think in Australia's current, current political climate, I just always Jack think about this is in opportunities like this, where there's this surging time for change, there's just ways that even if you don't agree that you can be dip- diplomatic. And I just feel like oh, I've worked in corporations, you've worked in corporate places and stuff. It's like, there are so many fixes and people that like advisors and stuff that are around you, like even in a corporate sense, they would just never let you say something so stupid and inflammatory. So then you see when the prime minister does it and you're like, how, do, how, 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 how does that happen? Mm-hmm. Trump is a different entity altogether because this is a man who like, you know, they, they, they can take his life, but they'll never take his Twitter, you know, like he's, he's just like, he's, he's the guy who would tweet until the, the bitter end. Um, but yeah, I, I don't want to seem like we're above it because there's just so much, there's so, so many ways you can tackle like that discontent and it's, it doesn't, you don't have to cause more, you know, more fishes, more, more excuses for us not to be a community, especially at this time. No, look, that it brings us full circle back to the top of uh, what we were talking about at the start of the episode, the political economy of news media in this yes. country. Um, so concentrated that people's awareness on these sorts of similarities, parallels is pretty much zero, yes. collectively at least. Um, we have media like, you know, the NITVs, the Indigenous Xs, the Koori Mail, you know, black-led media, niche media in other areas or issues. Um, but 
just not reaching enough people. But more importantly, NITV being the national Indigenous television uh, station, um, a, a public broadcaster, um, predominantly uh, black, you know, up until it's black editorial now, but predominantly in the past, black, you know, led editorial, um, journalistic practice, just not being picked up by any of the white news media organisations in the way that they uh, tackle, you know, approach, um, cover Indigenous stories, Indigenous issues. Um, so why, why isn't that the case, that they wouldn't look across occasionally at NITV or the work online from NITV uh, News Online and just go, oh, is that how you do it? Is that like, oh, all right. It just seems... It seems don't get that. It seems, <laughs> seems baffling to me just in general. Like you see great teams of, you know, great editorial teams and great writing teams and, and you see internationally, just even in culture journalism, just watching the emergence of some of the most incredible black voices. You know, I, I, there's a, you know, for fans of, uh, fans of these podcasts, Angelica Jade Bastian, who writes for New York Magazine and Vulture, may be the best mm. film critic that's worked today. And in 10 years' time, they might talk about her like a Pauline Kale or something like that. Like, she's that good. Emerging writers from Chicago, who I'm lucky enough to have on the show, have had on the show, like Robert Daniels and stuff like that. Like, it just feels like in your arsenal of a great editorial team, you've got to have those great voices. You know, I've got another friend, uh, American Iranian film critic Roxana Haddadi has been on the show a couple of times. It's like, you've got to have those voices to talk about, to talk about issues and to, to pitch issues that are for, for their perspective. Cause it's different. It's just different to yours. And, and I totally agree. It's like in Australia, it's so, it's so lazy. Um, the magazine 24 hour news cycle television that happens mm -hmm. on the media because like, you know, uh, which I'm thankful for. And I've actually said on this show, I'm thankful for things like people getting sued for having a panel of three white people propose a new stolen generation on like channel seven in the morning like that. They should mm. be sued. That, that, that company should be held to account. Like surely there was one of a hundred great indigenous journalists that could have been on a panel to, to discuss something that is involving indigenous affairs in this country. This is the thing. And for international listeners, um, there is a great silence. It's called great silence in Australia. It's a uh, deliberate sort of omission um, of past histories and decisions and policies and things like that. Now, Channel 7, the morning show or today show, whatever it's called, the, the morning program, they basically just ran exactly that line uh, for a long period. Like their decision around having those three particular non-Indigenous and, you know, inflammatory type uh, uh, profile people uh, discussing something so sensitive as child removal, forced child removal by the state from Aboriginal parents. That decision wasn't made in a vacuum or no. wasn't a, a, an isolated incident. They have long period of form uh, yeah. emitting and erasing the sorts of things that, you know, people have arced up at. Then, more recently with the BLM stuff, but prior to that, um, they, you know, there's an Aboriginal journalist, uh, commentator called uh, Amy McGuire, who was working in Canberra in the Canberra Press Gallery at the time, that they had a morning show being broadcast from, you know, the, the, the uh, 
front yard of the Parliament House, and there was a rally. Who, uh, a bunch of uh, communities had come down from Central Australia to rally about child removal on the forelawn, and that's Channel Seven uh, Today Show had set up their makeshift, um, you know, broadcast uh, in front of it, and they actually held up a blanket to block out the the protest behind them, <laughs> right? And then. Jump forward again, probably two, two, three years, uh, the Commonwealth Games on the Gold Coast. And I happened to be up there for the protests uh, around that, covering it for the Guardian and um, and Koori Mail, actually. And the same thing happened. They had a little makeshift sort of studio set up, backdrop of the beach. Nice broad beach background. Looks like Miami. Yeah, yeah, the towers, the glass and steel towers. Oh, fantastic. Um, but the, the Stolen Wealth um, protest march got wind of it. I think they got a tip off from somebody inside Channel 7 that there was going to be at that location <laughs> at that time. Um, so they've gone down there. And whether that was a deliberate tip off or not, who knows? Yes. Um, but they went down there and they were rallying, you know, protesting, clamouring behind uh, the, the setup, you know, the, the, the hosts and their couches and, and that sort of thing. And again, they attempted to hold a sheet up to block them out. <laughs> <laughs> now, oh, the idiocy behind it, they should have embraced it. It would have increased their ratings, the conflict on screen, all of that sort of thing. But yeah, they went to try and um, to block it out a minute with some sheeting. Um, so that's the form that they carry in. Let's not forget also, they had a pretty much a running slot for Pauline Hanson. Yes. Who is, you know, has been a preeminent racist. Um, yeah, look, Australian I, politics I, I, since 95 or something, six maybe. A few episodes earlier, on episode 65, I invited a, a friend on the show again for his second appearance, Travis Johnson, a film critic and I, and usually Travis is the angry one. Um, but uh, maybe it was just the week, uh, but it was around the week that we recorded the whole Pauline Hanson thing. And, and yeah, a preeminent racist in this country, a political fringe dweller that has been basically satiated. Like she's been a parasite of the political machine for about 20 years, has a very strong base in like three suburbs in Queensland. Um, and that's about it. And the biggest, one of the biggest national broadcasters basically gave her a permanent slot to be racist on national television to sort of stunt car crash her into notoriety for many years, including putting her on dancing with the fucking stars. And yeah. I got angry because they're like, they gave her a stunt slot, then apologized for it and banned her from being on their show. But, they've got more analysis to do. They've got more apology to do because it's 20 years of this person being in our media because of them. So you can apologize, not just for that one event where she says something racist. You could apologize for almost every time she's been on your show saying things that are racist for a variety of minority people in this country. And it, it just seems so unfathomable to me, Jack, that like, they're like, Oh, I'm sorry. Now, now, 20 years. Mm. We never have heard. Like it was 96 or seven that she came to political notoriety, never got more than 5% of the vote, barely has been able to hold onto a senator seat, barely can string a sentence together. You give her a TV slot every day. Yeah. No, that's right. And uh, that sounds entirely reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, um, 
as you say, around she went to jail at one point uh, yes. for misappropriation of funds political funds. Around, yeah. yeah, and um, they they got her back. They they redeemed her pretty much. Uh, with the dead. Like a phoenix. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness! So, look, it's extraordinary, and um, for the for those sorts of programs, uh, the Channel Seven whatever it's called, breakfast show, sunrise. That's what it's yes. called. The sunrise. Um, and Channel 9's offering uh, today, um, to turn around in the present sort of climate and, you know, pose and print as if they're mindful of the Aboriginal Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter movement and attempt to get in on it with whatever, uh, you know, whatever sort of method or mode that they try to do it, whether it's having uh, the token, and I say token because it is yeah. um, original uh, guest or person of colour as a guest or a, a regular on the couch from this point going forward. Like, it's just, it's offensive. It's offensive and it's, it's part of a broader sort of thing internationally, but, you know, just more likely here in Australia of, the reconciliation, um, you know, movement. Um, the onus always seems to be on Aboriginal people reconciling themselves to the fact that they're not going to get proper land rights. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a, you know, to be cynical about it, it's another organ to um, to reiterate um, it's sort of assimilation policies and practices. Um, I mean, there'd be a lot of people that are part of Reconciliation Australia that might be upset with me saying that, but, you know, there can be so much more done for genuine reconciliation than what is happening in Australia. And a, a, a morning television program with a long form line of racist shit um, can't just, um, you know, wash itself, absolve itself with the appointment of an Aboriginal uh, host or guest or all black panel for one session. Uh, today's show has got an Aboriginal journal journalist named Brooke Boney, um, who joined them last year, uh, maybe a little bit uh, further back than that. And she's a, ostensibly a, an entertainment um, journalist and, and host to provide you know, that sort of thing for the program. But whenever they need her to say something around the contested national date of January 26 slash Australia Day slash Invasion Day slash Survival Day, um, they will, you know, all of a sudden she's not the entertainment journalist. She is a political commentator who gets a couple of minutes to, you know, camera time to say something that's going to provoke their readership into engaging below the line or in their social media comment threads and a barrage, inevitably a barrage, a, a tsunami of racist sentiment washes in and not, a, you know, not having a go at the issue or the topic, but playing, yeah, yeah. playing the person and, and really, you know, taking, it'll be difficult for Brooke. It's not a safe working environment, firstly, for her employer to be putting her in. Let's not forget that. Yes. Um, but also just to, to bear that the brunt of that and being set up to do it. Now, they probably learnt from the first time or second time that they did it. 
and they're not probably the fifth time, fourth time. But they still cut to her to provide explanation and context as though that is her job because she's an Aboriginal person that they've employed. Um, and without sort of, you know, you don't see him cutting across to somebody else to provide the same sort of service who isn't Aboriginal, um, you know, to explain, I don't know, why people are buying so much toilet paper. <laughs> across to Kochi, he's going to give us an explanation about white people and toilet paper. <laughs> what are you doing that for? Um, but we see that with Brooke and, you know, I, I'm offended on her behalf and I'm concerned for her health. Yes. And it's not just me, but a lot of my colleagues within, um, Oh, you just, you're, it's an, it's an invitation for her to get slammed. Yeah. Like just women, women in, women in general. And persecute, and yeah. Like, yeah. Not slam, like persecute her identity yeah. where they, you know, the sorts of things, and it's pretty gross, but you know, that, that woman's about as Aboriginal as my left testicle. And, you know, comments like that, that's one that I read the other day. So yeah, that's really difficult because, you know, for, again, for international guests, even Australian guests who don't get it, uh, listeners that don't get it, that is a difficult burden and traumatic for Aboriginal people, individuals, um, to wear, to, to, to cop, because there's a long history there of the state. Um, you know, very strategically and fiercely and diligently attempting to erase our very existence by, you know, taking us of our kids, um, uh, taking the kids away from the parents, uh, depriving us of languages, um, but, you know, trying to essentially breed us out, smoothing the pillow as we die out, as was as phrased once. Um, so when, you know, an Aboriginal person who has grown up uh, in Aboriginal culturally, um, in a community, in identity, has a wave of people saying, you're not Aboriginal. Um, like that's, that's a, it's a really confronting thing. It's a really personally offensive thing yes. to say that you're not what we made you. You know, you are not the thing that we hated, that we tried to take away from you, that we don't <laughs> like. You're not that but you kind of are. And that's why we're doing it. Like it's a really weird. um, It's, it's, it's unfair to make that person a singular target too, because that's the other thing is when, when you are a token voice on such a massive program and there's not a dialogue, a genuine committed dialogue about something, it it becomes, it, it becomes just like you are, all you're doing is just laser focusing on all of the hate and infective and that, and that real fringe and, you know, sometimes majority, but that fringe of people who are willing to go on there and like devalue you as an individual, as a person, devalue your culture, devalue your contribution. And it just feels like what, those shows could genuinely make a difference. They reach a lot of people. Yeah. Like they're if, the most popular shows on free-to-air television. Free-to-air television. They reach, they reach a lot of people. And if they actually had a genuine dialogue about, are we like, could we all just not like, if you want another public holiday, we'll just make the national day like the 1st of Jan and we'll just keep that as a public holiday on the 26th and call it something else. Yeah. Call it Reconciliation yeah. Day. We'll just keep we, won't have, we won't have the military um, fanfare of the jets flying over. and the, right. we, know, can the on new, we can have that on New Year's Day. 
We can have that on yeah. New Year's Day because that's technically when Australia was created. <laughs> we can have that on New Year's Day and, uh, and, and you can wave your flags and a lot of the idiots who with the Southern Cross tattoos and, um, and who wear the flag, uh, the, the Australian flag, all those guys can be hung over. So they probably might miss out on their flag waving duties yeah. on that day, but they can sort of back up, you know, hair yeah. the dog and just go for it on New Year's Day as well. And uh, Bob Strong. Well, how was he, are you? How Aussie, like, for you, how Aussie are you? Are you going to get up with your hangover and wave your flag? <laughs> how Aussie are you? Mate, that's, uh, I want to copyright that because I think we are, we're close. I think if we can have any influence out of it, there's a lot of things that can happen out of this podcast. If one of them is that the date has changed, that is the, oh, I'm, I'm telling you, you can reach Jack and I via Twitter. Um, uh, that they're the best places to find, but there's your campaign right there. How was he? Are you to back up from New Year's Eve to get get on get on it the next day? Oh my goodness, mate! This has been such a fun and sprawling and enlightening conversation for me personally, and I, and I hope that for the listeners. And it's been a real treat to talk to you. You're 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 awesome. I admire what you do, and I think that um, I think it's really good and fascinating for people to hear from an indigenous man such as yourself to talk about like. The, the challenges and to add some reality to that and to actually contextualize in this country that we are not above or detached from these issues in our own country. We have our own context that is very relevant and continues to be relevant and continue to be challenging. And I just, yeah, it's been a real treat talking to you about this. And I'm so glad that this movie brought us together talking about this. I wish I could get some Maccas with you um, and and say, how Aussie are you um, to a few people who refuse to back up on Australia Day, but uh, it's probably a long ways off. So it's been a real treat talking to you. It might be some way off, but it will happen. Uh, no, look, thanks for having me on. It's been great. And um, any time in the future, I'll make myself available. Wow, that was a great convo. God, I loved having the awesome Jack Lattimore, which you can find on Twitter at, at LattimoreJack, L-A-T-I-M-O-R-E. He's the digital editor at NITV News, but you can also find him on the Take It Black, B L. B-L-A-K podcast uh, where he's the co-host there so you can find all of his stuff there jump off on Twitter and go and subscribe to the Take It Black podcast where you can hear him as he offered we will uh, very very gratefully uh, oblige Jack another visit here Uh, uh, he was just so great and so we're going to talk to him again he's awesome you guys are going to hear from him you're awesome for listening to all the President's Minutes thank you so much for listening to the show guys if you can at the very least please subscribe, rate, and review the show. The reviews help get it in front of more people. If you have a few extra bucks, there's a donation link in the description of this podcast. We appreciate you. We'll catch you on another episode very soon. Thanks for listening.